Is there something that you're supposed to do? You know it. Something you're supposed to do. But perhaps obstacles or perhaps the opinions and words of others are keeping you from acting. Is there anything like that in your life today? We're going to talk about that before it's over. But I want to remind you that we are continuing our limited series. Basically, what we've been doing is we've been studying what we call the Bible. The word Bible means the books because it's actually two collections of books. The ancient Hebrew scriptures, which is the story of a nation of people, their, their foundation, their kings, their laws, their prophets. And then another collection of books called the Christian scriptures, or we might call them the Old Testament and New Testament. But these two collections of books, the Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures bound together, make up 66 books between the two of them, we call it the books or the Bible. We've been working through the, through the Hebrew scriptures, kind of taking a narrative arc through that story together. And as we've been doing that, we've come to a space that we have, we've been uh, spending the last few weeks in, and we've called this little mini-series or this little limited series, we've called it the Wander Years, because it contains the season after the Israelites were freed out of slavery in Egypt and brought out of Egypt and taken towards the promised land, the land that God had promised their ancestors centuries earlier, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the promised land. And from their journey out of slavery and to the promised land, they were in the wilderness, and they ended up wandering there, so we call them the wander years. And it's been hard to rush past this section because there's so much information there. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've covered that, and we're almost done with this little mini-series within the bigger series, okay? In fact, we're going to finish the wander years next week. And I know last week was super practical and interesting, I think, and, and I hope all these stories are engaging for you. But next week is my, I, it resonates with me, I really like what we're going to talk about next week as we wrap up the wander years, part of the Hebrew scriptures. So don't miss that. But for today, we're going to talk about the key event as to why they're called the wander years. Some, something happens that makes them what we're calling them today. And I need to remind you before we get into the verses, we'll be in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 today, remind you of what has happened so far. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. God had, and they cried out to, for freedom. They cried out to God in prayer. And God raised Moses as a deliverer, brought him back out of exile to Egypt. And through a series of miracles, he brought them out. God has shown himself strong. Ten plagues on the Egyptians to uh, finally break their will and let the, let, the, let the Israelites leave slavery and bondage. After that, he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. They think they're in trouble there because the Egyptians pursue them again. But God parts the waters, sends them over on dry ground, drowns their enemies behind them, miracle upon miracle. Uh, a cloud by day to shelter the, the, the nation, the whole group of them from the hot uh, desert uh, heat and um, uh, uh, fire at night to keep them warm in the cool wilderness atmosphere and to lead them and to guide them as they go, dropping food into their laps, I mean, onto the ground every day to feed them miraculously for their entire trip. It's unheard of. Water out of a rock that, that they took and it traveled with them. It just, you know, it, all of these things are miracles that we've never seen the likes of. If we've seen one of those things in our lives happen, we would never stop talking about it. It would be so defining. And they've seen all of these things that God has done to make it possible for them to go from slavery and helplessness to taking care of them until they can get ready to go into the promised land. 
And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you follow the story. All they've done is complain. They've complained, complained, complained the entire way. Like, oh, God brought us out here to the Red Sea to kill us here. I was like, what? No, I, let's part the waters. Oh, we're going to have no food. God brought us out here to starve us to death. What? Here's food, you know. Every time, they, they didn't just complain, they accused. Because that's what happens when we complain. By the way, that's what happens if we let complaining become a part of who we are. Eventually, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, woe is me, life is hard. It becomes accusation. God is not good. It's, it's the people in my family are around me. It's their fault. I blame, blame somebody. It's from, you know, others, my family, my neighborhood, my, you know, the, the, the world, the country, anybody, anyone but me. I'm just, I'm upset and, and I'm, I'm complaining and I'm just gonna gripe. It just becomes toxic. And eventually, as we saw last week, that, that spirit of criticism spread throughout the entire group of people to where everyone was... It's easy to create a toxic culture in the workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, in a, church, in a faith community, in, 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 a, in the world, in, the na- in a nation of people, because we get around people who are so negative and, we, and it feeds off each other and it just spreads. And if we're not careful, it becomes a toxic culture and environment. And that's how it had gotten. And Moses is discouraged from it all. He's just done. But God has done so much to bring them here. Miracles. And now they are on the edge of entering the land of Canaan. They called it the promised land. Why is it called that? Because God promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hundreds of years ago, that their descendants would be their land. But they, have been, they end up in Egypt, they end up in slavery for centuries. Now they're back to the promised land. It's time to go in, out of the wilderness, and enter. But their attitudes were still always in the gutter. And their faith was just not strong. And so, as they got to the edge of the promised land, they had a brilliant idea. Let's send in spies to go check out the land before we go in to make sure what we're getting into. Well, you're getting into what God's taking you to. Let's go. But they're like, I don't know. So they, they, they chose 12 spies amongst them. Now, the, the way they chose their spies was every tribe of Israel, there were 12 tribes of Israel, every tribe sent one spy from their group. And if you don't understand what the 12 tribes of Israel are, I want to remind you that the, na- the word Israel is the name of their ancestor Jacob. Jacob was, na- was named Jacob by his parents, but God changed his name later to Israel. So Jacob is Israel. Israel is Jacob. And Jacob had a whole bunch of sons, a bunch of kids, and had 12 sons. Well, and, and each one, um, as their family tree grew below them, was the sons of Jacob were known as the tribes of Israel. It's, kind of, it's a little more complicated than that with the family dynamic, but that's the gist of it right there. So the, the, each tribe of Israel sent one spy to represent their tribe to go into the promised land and check it out to see what it was like before they went in. And you don't know, the names are listed. We're not going to read them today because we're going to forget them. But I want you to remember two of the, of the 12 names, two of the spies that go into the land. The one name you've heard us talk about already, it was Joshua. Joshua, who was Moses' assistant, he was a young man. He, was, he would be there up the mountain with Moses, meeting with God, or in the tabernacle with God's presence. He was a, a leader in the making. He was being mentored. He had a passion and a heart for, for the God of Israel. And so Joshua, the young man, goes in as a spy with the others. He represented his tribe, which was the tribe of Ephraim. Another of the 12 spies was a young man named Caleb. 
Caleb represented the tribe of Judah. And there were 10 others. Their names are not important. The point is these 12 men go in to check out the land. And when they get there, it's amazing. They find it's so fruitful, they actually have to have help taking the clusters of grapes. They put them on, over like poles uh, and, and carry them on shoulders. They have pomegranates. They have so much delicious fruit. And they bring them back to show the people this land is fruitful and abundant. It's going to be great. But they also see the fortified cities. They see the enemies. They see the danger that's there. So when they come back, we pick up the story in Numbers 13, starting with verse 25. It says, after exploring the land for 40 days, that's how long they took, 40 days in the land, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. It says, they reported to the whole community what they had seen, and they showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. They said, we've entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's a pretty good image to conjure up there. Even in today's terms, that sounds like a pretty good image to conjure up, a land flowing with milk and honey. Or we might, we might say a land flowing with sonic uh, blast milkshakes or something. I don't know, or whatever you like. But um, a, a land that flows with milk and honey, it sounds so good. And in those days, that even meant more. It meant this land is going to be the best place to go to. They said, here's the kind of fruit it produces. We brought some back with us. But, there's always a but, right? But the people living there are powerful. And their towns, their towns are large and they're fortified. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak, now giants, there were reports back then in those days of, of people who were, they called them giants because they lived, uh, they were taller. I think uh, the one account we know record of was about nine, a nine-foot tall person. I don't know too many nine-feet tall people today. If so, they'd be a great basketball player. Um, you know, they'd be drafted by the Indiana Pacers tomorrow at, at that height, I guess. But, but nine feet tall is pretty, is pretty tall. And that was what they would call giants. Uh, that's, that's what we know of, just people who are just, I don't know, just... You don't, you don't see that seven feet is pretty big nowadays, right? And in all of our lifetime. But apparently there were giants there. Then they, could, they said there's they're, they're powerful towns fortified and large with strong walls and gates and soldiers and giants there. Verse 29, they said the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan River. In other words, this place is packed full of dangerous people and it's scary. And all the people of Israel are hearing the report from these 12 spies, and they're all saying, oh no, this is too hard. We knew it. That's why we sent spies in the first place, because we knew it was too hard. We can never overcome it. We can never occupy the promised land that God offered us, because it sounds scary. But in the middle of that, Joshua and Caleb had a better outlook. They had a different view than the other 10 spies. In fact, Caleb speaks up right here in verse 30. Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. He goes, no, hey, let's go up at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. Hey, guys, stop being afraid. This is nothing. Have you seen what God's done so far? This is nothing. Let's go. Pack up the stuff, load up your suitcases, get your ticket, hop on the train. We're, in, we're, we're going. Let's do it. I love someone like Caleb. 
with a kind of positive energy that says, this is something by the grace of God we're going to see him do. But, verse 31, the other men who had explored the land with him, they disagreed. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So, they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. And here's what they said to all the people, ready? They said, the land that we traveled through to explore will devour anyone who goes to live there. And this is a very interesting statement. What they were saying is, the land that we're going to explore is a dangerous place. Not just the people, the land. Well, I thought the land brought back clusters of grapes and pomegranates. I thought the land was amazing. They're like, no, the land will eat us alive. We're used to Egypt, where you go to Egypt and you have, I don't know, um, you know, an arid atmosphere. But this place here, we can't handle those crops. We can't handle that land. And not just the land, the people. All the people we saw there, they were huge. They were huge. They were just so big, we couldn't possibly handle the people of the land. <laughs> Verse 33, they said, we even saw giants there, the sons of Anak. And here's what they said. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. And that's an exaggeration. Grasshoppers next to the people? Come on now. But, but listen, that is exactly what fear will do to you, isn't it? That's what fear does to us. Fear will cause us to see things that are big as supersized Instead of saying, yeah, the people are a little bit bigger, that's a little bit scary, I don't know how that will work out. They're like, oh no, oh no. I mean, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. We will always exaggerate and be occupied by heightened senses of fear when fear controls our thoughts and our decisions. And see, here's the sad part. God had been trying to develop in them a mindset of possibility. Ever since he brought them out of Egypt, through all the miracles of the things he's done, he's been trying to develop in them a mindset of possibility, of victory, of confidence in his ability to do things that they could not imagine. And yet, they couldn't or wouldn't abandon the mentality of their slavery. They're like, they, they had, and we can all do this if we have trouble in our past that, that was hard, that we've had to overcome or get away from. Sometimes those things can haunt us into our future. And the people in the story here, they had a victim mentality. They're like, yeah, uh, in the old days in Egypt when we were in bondage, we, they didn't make any decisions at all. They complained. They're like, oh, the, 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 the taskmasters of Egypt are terrible. Complain to God, God help us, we have no, we have no say so. And then, and then God brought them out, and then they, what did they do? They had the same victim mentality. Oh, he brought us out here to kill us by the Red Sea, so he parts the Red Sea. Oh, he brought us out here to starve us to death in the wilderness, so he feeds them. Oh, thirst, you know. It's always like nothing's right, nothing's perfect. This is happening because I have no control and I have no ability to see God working in the circumstance, so I'm just going to complain. That was their go-to Reflex. In fact, I've said this so many times through the years, not recently, but we as people, we either adopt a reactive mentality or a proactive mentality. You gotta decide which it is. Reactive people are people who everything just happens to them in life. They look at all their circumstances and say, they all stink. I have three options and they all stink. 
This option stinks for this reason. This option solves that problem. It creates this other problem, so that still stinks. And this other thing, that's just nuts. All my options are bad. Nothing's good. It's everyone's fault. You know, blame culture, society, family, people, everything but God. But it's just nothing's perfect at all. There's no yellow brick road. That's what reactive people do. But proactive people say, hey, I'm going to have the perfect option, but I have options. And I have the freedom to choose which option I take. And yes, the option I choose might have some obstacles or complications, but that's okay because that's just how it goes. And I chose that one as the best course of action, and I'm going to do what I can do. Reactive people say, look, look, I can't do anything that's perfect for me because something's always wrong. And proactive people say, what can be done? Where can I go? Look at the possibilities. Let's act. Boy, I'll tell you, you just got to find yourself in one of those spots in life. And if we're not careful, you end up in the reactive one, which is a, ultimately a victim mentality. And boy, if, if you've been there, if you've been stuck in there for so long, folks, listen, if you've been stuck in there for so long, you just got, it's, it's a journey out. But you got to start looking at what can you do instead of look what's happened that you can't control. Anyhow, that's where they were. And they never overcame that mentality since their years of bondage. And they were still thinking this way. A huge part of that mindset was the refusal or the inability to see past the here and now. And see that something bigger is is at work. We're going to see that here in just a few moments, but let's keep reading first. Numbers 14 verse 1 says, Then the whole community began weeping out loud. And they cried all night, not just for an hour, but all night long. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and against Aaron. Now again, that's what I said about their complaining. It always became toxic. It was never, this is tough, woe is me. It was, this is tough, woe is me, and it's your fault. And so they said, if only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. If you've been tracking the story with us the last few weeks, you'll recognize a pattern here. When they were in Egypt, they're like, oh, if only we were out of slavery, do something, God. So God brings them out. And then in the wilderness, they said, oh, these new problems, if only we were back in slavery. We didn't have these problems then. Those were the good old days. Always beware of people who always look back to a different time period as the good old days. So always looking through rose-colored glasses when we talk that way. We're forgetting that in the good old days, we were griping about them too. You know? And so they're looking back saying, oh, if only we were back in Egypt instead of here. Well, you wanted to be here when you were there. I know, but now we want to be there. So then they're now at the edge of the promised land, and now they're saying, this is bad. If only we were back in Egypt or even in the wilderness that we've been griping about. It's just because there's always a way to look at something through the worst possible lens. Here's what they said in verse 3. Why is the Lord taking us up to this country only to have us die in battle? Isn't that silly? Like, that's, that was God's master plan. They foiled it. He wanted to bring them out of slavery and all the miracles he did so he could let them die in battle in the new place. That was his whole goal the whole time. No, of course not. But that's what they're saying. God's brought us here to let us die in battle. And then they said, our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. This is, and this is so true for all of us. As a guy, I'm going to speak to the men here. Men, sometimes we, we justify our gripes or our criticisms or our negativity or our anger over things that we have problems with and we will hide behind our family. 
It's because of them or for their sake or whatever. God did this to us, and we're upset because our wives and children will, will be carried off as plunder. So we have a right to feel the way we feel. Wouldn't it be better, they said, for us to return to Egypt? And they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And you're like, what? Why would you want to go back to the place that you were slaves? Did you forget that you were praying for God to take you out of that when you were there? Why would you choose to go back there instead of going into the promised land with all of this beautiful countryside? And here's why. And all of us should take this to heart and think about our own lives a little bit. Sometimes it's easier to deal with the devil you know than the one you don't. Sometimes it's easier to say, I know the obstacles of, of, of Egypt. It was bad, but at least I know what it was. But the promise, I don't know what's going to happen there, it scares me. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I would rather stay in my unideal but controlled environment than to step out into the fear of the uncertainty of what might happen. And so they limited themselves by going backwards or wanting to go backwards instead of stepping into a new space, believing that God would be with them and it would be okay. Boy, can we relate to that ever? They had, they had two things to overcome. The first thing they had to overcome was the obstacles. There were legitimate obstacles in the promised land. There were big people. There was fortified cities and walls, and it was, it was, it was, it was the unknown. And if they, could gotten, if they could have gotten past the obstacles, the other thing they had to overcome was the opinions of others. Because 10 of the 12 spies said, don't listen to Joshua and Caleb. The majority opinion is, it's impossible, we can't do it. And everyone else caught the bug. And they're all like, it's terrible, we can't go in, we can't do it. And everyone believed it. Everyone believed it. So now you've got to overcome the, all the negative opinions of all the people saying it's impossible, it's stupid, why are you trying to do that, who do you think you are, that's the worst idea ever, mocking, criticizing, downplaying. Between the opinions of others and the obstacles in front of them, they had a lot to overcome. But here's the thing about life that we can all learn. It isn't the obstacles or their opinion that will stop you in life, ever. It's not the obstacles or their opinion that will stop you. It's your outlook. In life, you have to decide if you're going to say, the obstacles are my reason not to proceed, or you're going to decide, I don't want to go against those who mock, who, who will mock me if I step out, and, 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 and um, who tell me it's a bad idea. I don't want to go against and, and be at the mercy of their gossipy opinions about me. So I'm going to just stay back and stay safe. But those things can't stop you. They can be reasons. It's your outlook. They'll either decide to listen to those obstacles and opinions, or you'll decide to say, I'm looking at something bigger and deeper. I'm looking higher. That's the only thing that will stop you in life. So what happens next is, let's keep reading the story. We'll make some more applications as we go. In verse 5, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, they fell down on the fa their face, fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. They just like literally collapsed. And when they do, like as they collapse on the ground, you say, Why are they reacting that way? Because they know what's happening. They know that God had brought all those people to the spot and, and they had been complaining the whole time and, and, and God was starting to say, I'm going to judge, I'm going to deal with that attitude. And now they're at the edge of the promised land that God wanted their 
ancestors hundreds of years ago to occupy, and they refused to go in. And Moses is like, this is a bad move. This is bad. This is a bad decision. So they're on their face before God because they know the people are about to royally blow it. And it says here that as they do in verse 6, that um, two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothing and they said to all the people of Israel, no, 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 listen, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. And by the way, he is pleased with us. You know how I know? Because we have the 10 plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and the food and the water and the cloud. I'm telling you, he who began a good work in us will perform it. He's still here. We got this. It's a rich land. It flows with milk and honey. Let's go. Do not, they said, do not rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're only helpless prey to us. You see, God took care of the Egyptians. Who are these people? We got this. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. And that, that's the secret sauce. If the Lord is with us, how can you fail? If God is for us, who can be against us? So they said, don't be afraid of them. Who? The people of the land that we're supposed to go move into, and don't be afraid of each other telling you that it can't be done and pulling down the atmosphere in our own ranks. Stop listening to people who are making you afraid. I love Joshua and Caleb in the story. In fact, I said this before about Joshua. I want to say it again. God, give us more Joshuas and Calebs in the world. You know, it's kind of a negative story because it's a story, in the last couple of stories in the wander years have been people complaining. There's been a lot of kind of a down, downers, you know. And here they are refusing to trust God. And so it's kind of a, a negative part of the story. But in the middle of all of that, there's Joshua and Caleb. Thank God for them. We just need more Joshuas and more Calebs in the world today. People who are willing to look past their obstacles and past all the noise around them and all the reasons why it can't be done or all the people that they're afraid of their opinion who are willing to step out and say, I don't care, if it goes against the grain, if it's what's right, if it's what God wants, if it's what God is calling me to, if this is what's in front of me, all things are possible with him. I can accomplish it. We can do it. God, give us more people like that. God, give us women and men who stand up like that in this world and say, we can do it. No matter what anyone else thinks. Here's what Joshua and Caleb were saying. They were saying, I've seen what God has done. And I know what God can do. I saw the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the fire by night, cloud by day, manna on the ground to eat every day, water from the rock. Hello, I've watched God take care of us. I have seen what God has done, and because of that, I know what God can do. And that right there is the secret sauce to getting past the obstacles and the opinions of others. That's the secret sauce to having the right outlook. Is when all of us look in our lives and say, Got some problems in front of me. Got some things. I got some unknowns. But I have seen what God has done in the past, in history, in those around me, in my own life so far. I've seen what God has done. And guess what? I know what God can do. And I'm going to live through that lens right there. Boy, I tell you, that makes all the difference in the world. God give us people like Joshua and Caleb. Well, in the next few verses, we won't read them. God basically says to, God basically says to 
Moses. I'm going to kill them all. I'm just going to wipe them all out. Start over again with your kids, Moses. We'll, we'll build a new nation. And, and, and you're like, man, God seems so harsh. God doesn't really do that. God said that more than once along the journey. In these wander years, God said that more than once. Let's kill them all and start over again. And before you think God's just some kind of crazy, uh, like, what in the world person, he didn't do it. He was maybe just venting a little bit, okay? We're made in God's image. If you're vented to your spouse, you love your kids, but you're like, honey, I'm going to kill them. We'll start over again, okay? They're great, but they're, I'm just done. Okay, you didn't mean it. And hopefully the other one of you, hopefully the other one of you is calm enough at that moment to say, honey, maybe we should think about that first, you know? Um, you know, I know, I know, I'm just saying. Um, so God's like, I'm just going to start over. And Moses is like, in this moment, Moses is like, God, if, if, if these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're so bad that you're going to wipe them out and start with my kids, <laughs> my kids won't take that long to mess up. You'll be killing them too. I'm in t- I know my kids, okay? So that's not a plan. So, and, and God's like, I know. So Moses begs for God's mercy. Moses begs for God to intercede and show compassion. And in Numbers 14, verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, Okay, I will pardon them, Moses, as you requested, but... But as surely as I live, as surely as the earth is, earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will enter that land. He says, in other words, here's what he's saying. These people here are not going into the place that I promised their ancestors, this land that flows with milk and honey. Nope. They're never going to enter. This, this group that I've, I've been trying to change their mindset, but they can't get past that stinking thinking, They're just never going to know it. He's, nope, not one of them will enter that land. He says, they've seen all my glorious presence. They've seen the miraculous signs that I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they've tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. What God is saying is what what we just said. They have seen what I have done. They know what I can do, but they won't follow me and believe me. They won't act in faith. And God says in verse number 20, uh, 23, they will never even see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who've treated me with contempt will ever see it. Verse 28, he continues a few verses later. He says, now tell them, to tell the people this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. We're going to turn your own words against you, he says. You'll all drop dead in this wilderness. Because you complain against me, every one of you who is 20 years of old or older and was included in the registration is going to die. Now, I, just in case I need to say this, God was not saying, I'm going to kill you all right now. I'm going to kill you. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. You're not going to, look, I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. I've been good. But I wanted to take you another, to another place. But you won't trust me. You won't let me take you there. So... This is as far as you're going to go. So we're, you're going you're to carry on. I'm going to feed you every day. Manna from heaven. I'm going clo- to give you water to drink. I'm going to be with you. But over the next many years, you'll eventually pass away. Some of you, because of accidents or other circumstances, some of you will live a long time. But as the decades tick on, eventually, as life goes, you'll all go. And you're going to do it out here and never enter that land that I want to bring you to. You're all going to end up dying out here. You're missing out. I'm with you. I love you. I brought you out. But you won't let me, you won't trust me to bring you in. So this is where you'll spend the rest of your life. And I'll take care of you. But you'll die. And your children will grow up to go in instead. 
He says, verse 30, you will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions, the only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua, they were young men. They were the two spies who said, God can do this. Don't listen to the noise. We, can, we got this. And God says, they're the only two above the, of this generation and older who's going to be able to get, you're all going to wait out here until your kids are ready to go in, and those are the only two that will live still. And they did. They, they, lived, they, would go out, they, were, they would go out there for 40 years, folks. Four more decades they would wander in the wilderness. Four more decades. And Joshua and Caleb, who were young men, outlived that generation. They would, um, they would um, be healthy and strong in their older years. Strong. Doing well. And they would go in to see the land. But man, what a bummer to have to wait a few decades, right? They were ready to go. Remember Caleb earlier? Let's go right now. And they had to wait 40 years. And it wasn't their fault. But I want you to, to, to take that and understand that though they had to wait... They were not unseen. And that's what I want you to hear today. Though they had to wait, they were not unseen. As God dealt with a whole nation of, of just stubborn people in this story and was dealing out this bad news that you're going to stay out here the rest of your lives. He said, in the middle of that, I see you, Caleb. I see you, Joshua. Listen, God sees you. Wherever you are today, God sees you. If, you, if you're the only person, if you feel like things are bad around you and no one's listening, God is watching and he sees. And he's there. And he cares. Listen, I know sometimes you have to wait longer than you want to. I know that sometimes things don't happen in your time frame because of circumstances outside of your control or because of people around you who kind of change your opportunities and there's nothing you can do about it. But these guys would eventually get to see and experience the promise that they had believed God for. It would just have to wait for a while. Don't give up. If you've had enough faith in God so far, don't give up because there's a wait. Isn't the story of the Hebrew scriptures a story of people believing God and waiting? Abraham believed God and came to the promised land and waited a long time before the, their son was born. Caleb and Joshua believed God to go into the promised land because of the decisions of others. They had to wait a long time, but they still went in eventually. Don't give up along the way and don't lose faith simply because you got to wait a while or a long while. Well, God's going to continue his story here as he talks to the nation and tells them you're not going in there. You could have, but you wouldn't trust me, so you're going to live your lives out here. God continues in verse 31 and says, you said your children will be carried off as plunder? Oh, yeah, well, I will bring them safely into the land, and they're going to enjoy what you've despised. Those kids you talked about, yeah, they're going to, they're going to be the ones that go in. They're going to grow up, and I'm going to have a, they're going to have a better mentality about what I can do after they watch what I'm doing in their lives than you will, than you have. And then he says this, this is kind of sad, but as for you, you will drop dead in this wilderness and your children will be like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In this way, they will pay for your faithlessness until the last of you lies dead in the wilderness. God says, I'm gonna let you live your lives out here and until you do, your kids will have to stay out here too and they'll grow up. And they could have been in sooner but they're going to pay. Because this is what happens in life. Isn't it true that we can make generationally impactful decisions, right? So many ways we can make bad financial decisions that impact the next generation or moral decisions or, you know, criminal decisions. So it's so easy to, to forget that sometimes our decisions pack 
those who come after us. And God says your kids are going to have to pay for your faithlessness because i got to keep you out. They can't go in for a long time. That's just the, that's the bum deal. But they'll go in someday. Because in the end, that was still the promised land. In the end, that was still the place that God promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's the lesson from that. That God does not stop working just because we stop believing. We say, I don't believe he can. Well, that might limit what he does with me or through me. But God doesn't stop working just because we stop believing. In this story, he's like, okay, well, I'll just have to keep you out here longer, but your kids will still go. We're still going to go to the promised land. My promises will still come true. My will will still be done. Listen, God, he is going to change the world. He's going to see his kingdom come, his will be done, through you, through me, or through someone else. But he's going to do what he's going to do. This generation just missed it. We're going to wrap up with a couple of statement at the end, but I want to show you one last little part of the story before we're done. Ready? It's just a, it's a little addendum to the story, and it's almost it's ridiculous, really. But I'm going to read it with you because if you were paying attention a couple of weeks ago with the manna, the manna story, you will, um, well, this will relate to you on some level if you can tie the dots together. Just the mentality of always having their own way of doing it apart from God's way, thinking that was the... Anyhow, let's read the story. So in verse 39, it says, When Moses reported the Lord's words to all the Israelites, the people were filled with grief. They're like, oh no, we blew it again, you know? So then they got up early the next morning, and they went to the top of the range of the hills. Let's go, they said. We realize that we have sinned, but now we're ready to enter the land the Lord has promised us. They're like, you know what? We, God said go. We said no. Now God says no, we're going to go. <laughs> So they're ready to charge in, right? But Moses said, why? That's a good question. Why are you now disobeying the Lord's orders to return to the wilderness? This is where you're gonna, this is what's next for you. This is, it won't work. He said, don't go up into the land now. You'll only be crushed by your enemies because the Lord is not with you. See, the reason it would have worked before is because God was gonna be with you. Nothing can stop you. But now you're gonna, he wants you here. He's with you here. If you go there, you're on your own. It's not gonna work. He says, listen, when you face the Amalekites and the Canaanites in the battle, you'll be slaughtered. The Lord will abandon you because you've abandoned the Lord. In other words, you're going away from his will and trying to do it in your power, and that does not turn out the way you hope it will. But the people defiantly pushed ahead toward the hill country, even though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant even left the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in those hills came down and attacked them. Chased them as back to as far as, as uh, Horma. They realized, whoops, I guess we're not going into the land after all. Reality set in. We're stuck out here until, well, God said 40 years. I guess it's 40 years. And God would take care of them. But time would take its toll. And another generation would be ready to believe God's promises. So what do we take away from all this? We all have obstacles, and we all live around people with strong opinions about what we should do, what they think, whether they say it's impossible, whether they're negative, whether they're, whether they're mocking of your decisions to follow the Lord or do what's right or what he's called you to. There's always opinions. There's always obstacles, but those things can't stop you. It's your outlook that will either spur you forward or stop you. You'll either decide to be reactive or proactive, have a victim mentality 
or have a mindset that sees the possibilities and trusts God. The best way to live is to say, I have seen what God has done so far, and I know what God can do still. And maybe it requires some patience. Maybe it requires some waiting. But faith is worth having. Because God's not going to stop working just because we stop believing. We might as well put our trust in him. I asked you a question at the very beginning. I said, is there something that you're supposed to do? Is there something that you know is right? Maybe it's something you're supposed to stop. Maybe it's something that you're supposed to start. Maybe it's something that you're supposed to do or be or go or whatever it may be. I don't, I'm trying not to, I have to be careful. I don't want to put words around it. Because it's your story. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart about. But is there something that you know is right that God wants you to step out and trust him for? But there are obstacles for you. Or there are opinions of others that hold you back. God will not be stopped. The only question is whether you'll go with him or miss the opportunities that he has for you. Not miss him. He loves you. The Israelites were still out of slavery. God was still taking care of them every day. They just didn't get what they could have had had they trusted God. God loves you. But don't miss out. If God is doing something, it may be challenging. But here's the bottom line. Nothing is stopping God. So the question then is, what's stopping you? Obstacles? Opinions? Other people? Doubts, fears, fears that are exaggerated by scope and size, forgetting what God's in the past, focusing on the negative, reactive thinking, fear. What is it? Nothing's stopping God. The question we need to wrestle down today, and I don't want to put a, a, a category on this thing. I want God to speak to your heart. Nothing's stopping him. What's stopping you? Whatever that is, I don't know. I think the best path forward might just be faith. Faith in him that's willing to follow wherever he leads.